Well, good evening. Welcome to another episode of Music Relish Podcast. My name is Perry, and on the other end we have... Mark Smith. Mark. Hello, Mark. How you doing, Perry? Okay, and I'd like to uh, let everyone know Lou is not with us tonight. He's a lovely evening with his son, Lou. So, Lou, have a great night. Lou Jr., have a great night, and we'll talk to you next week. Miss you, Lou. Absolutely. So, Perry, you know, uh, tonight will be a little like when you and me were neighbors in Westwood and we used to meet at the uh, fence and just <laughs> at the talk fence. about music for an hour while Louise looked at me and, what are you talking to that guy next door for so much? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and she, in fact, uh, she was the one who, uh, when, when, when she moved out, somebody had... Uh, Somebody had like there were like six layers of cigarette smoke or something on the, on the, on the four, walls. <laughs> there were four fire department calls when I lived there because she would put her cigarette butts out in the garbage. Good move, Louise. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> good times. You know, so I saw <coughs> excuse me, I saw a, a clip of Pete Townsend playing on Dave Letterman in nineteen ninety-three. So the Who was still around, but for he did he had a new solo album out. But in, he, in fact, he said to the crowd, "In uh, he said instead of playing a song for my solo record, I'm going to play Pinball Wizard." And you know he always plays those beautiful big Gibson jumbo guitars. Mm-hmm. You know they sound so great. They do, yeah. And so and he's playing it with uh, you know with the Dave Letterman band and. Uh, and it sounded great. It sounded really, really great. At the end of the performance, this is 1993. He says, let's do this for all the people. And he smashes this beautiful Gibson guitar to shreds oh. on Dave Letterman's show. And it's like, this isn't, it's 1993. Like, How about I, he gives it to somebody in the audience that he would love to have a great guitar? You could sign it and give it to someone. Uh, he smashed it to shreds on Dave Letterman's show in 1993 after playing Pinball Wizard. He smacked the microphone stand with it, and then he smashed the guitar to bits. A beautiful Gibson jumbo. And I know these things, 20 years ago, these things cost like $3,500 Yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, when, when he smashed that thing up, that was a $3,500 guitar. I couldn't believe it. So he can do it because he could afford it. But it, it, I, okay, I very, you know, I, I never say what a musician does is wrong because everyone musician does what they want to do. I'm totally against this guitar smashing. It, it was cool when it first happened, but like with the price of guitars now, and it's to me, a guitar has a soul. So you're killing something. Give it to somebody. Uh, do you think he fell off a wagon that night? Maybe. I, I don't know, but I, I was shocked that it was in the 1990s and he was still smashing up beautiful, beautiful instruments. I, I just couldn't believe it. I think he was just caught up in the moment. I'm on David Letterman. I'm I'm going to uh, show my old thing. Like, this is my reputation. I just got caught up in it, but still, don't smash the guitars. It hurts to see that. <laughs> but with the smashing of the guitar, I'm like, oh, gosh, man. Like, I understand he was doing it for artistic reasons and, you know, back then. And, uh, but I have another, another subject. I, I don't know if you remember this. Lou may remember this. In 1984, 
I remember reading on the news that a plane crashed in Atlantic City just off the boardwalk. So in other words, this was, I think it was in the fall. People were, you know, the boardwalk was jammed in Atlantic City. People were wheeling their babies and, you know, whatever they were doing. And just offshore, like less than a mile offshore, a plane plunges into the water. Wow. Killing everyone on board. This drummer, Mike Portnoy, that was his mom that was on that plane. You know, Perry, I didn't know that. And wow. Yeah. Gee. His mom was on that plane. And that's, I, I, well, okay, so that's why he grew up. I always talked about growing up with his dad. He never mentioned his mom. Oh, wow. They, they, were, they were separated or divorced at that point, but it was still his mom. Yeah, yeah. So she was on that plane with three other people. Um, she was there with her boyfriend or whoever, but it was Mark, uh, Mike Portnoy's mom that died on that plane. And I remember hearing that on the news in Atlantic City, 1984. That's, that's, uh, wow. Yeah, and I guess the fact that he hasn't talked about it, you know, it's not something <laughs> that, that people want to talk about, you know. Yeah, that, that you yeah. know, that is, that's his issue. Um, let, let me play a little couple of seconds of a song. Lou's going to flip out, but let me play a couple of seconds of a song for you here, all right? And see if you remember, you, uh, because we just mentioned Pete Townsend. Yeah. Okay. Uh huh. Let me see if I can get a song. You remember that song? Oh, yeah. Now it's Thunderclap Newman. Uh huh. And the song, it's, it's great. It's, I mean, it's a great song. Apparently, Pete Townsend produced this record. Didn't he have a big hand in getting the band together to begin he, with? He did. He yeah. assembled the band. Absolutely. Good call. He assembled the band. And um, what, what I really found interesting is... Guitar player was? Who's that? 15-year-old Jimmy... Jimmy McCulloch. Ah, the wings. 15 years old, and he was playing guitar on that song. 15 years old. He started young. I didn't know that. Yeah. Now, the bass player, the bass player's name was Bijou, Bijou Drains. Now, the bass playing is beautiful on that song, is it not? Absolutely. It's Pete Townsend playing bass. Ah, yeah, and credit to the production because it's a well-produced song. What year did that come out in? Sixty-nine. Yeah, you know, for sixty-nine, that was a masterfully mixed and engineered song because the bass is very easily heard, but it doesn't overpower it. It's a great sound. A great song. song. The, the bit, I, I was I was shocked to find out that it was actually Pete Townsend playing bass on it because the bass always stood out to me. Yeah. I was actually, when you said the name, I was going to say, was it Clear Your Drains? No, it's Bijou Drains. Okay. Bijou Drains, and it was Pete Townsend. That was just one of his uh, yeah, alter egos, I guess. Now, did they, do you know if Thunderclap Newman did anything after that? They did. They had a few records, and uh, the, the, they only toured. They opened up for Deep Purple. Wow. 
Yeah, from July 69 to August 69. Interesting. They only had they really only had a few songs to play. They did they did like a cover of Lady Madonna as a 12 bar jam or something, you know. And uh but something in the air, of course, was the uh the big hit. Yep. And and something's in the air is one of those songs that if it's used in a movie, when you hear it in the movie, you instantly love the movie. You know what I mean? It's like so, it's, so in fact, it says right here. It says something in the air appeared on soundtracks of movie The Magic Christian in 1969, The Strawberry Statement 1970, um, Kingpin, the movie with uh, Bill Murray and Woody, <laughs> <laughs> the bowling movie, yeah. almost famous. And uh, Lou would be Lou would be uh, he would love to hear that it was in My Name Is Earl, the uh, the TV show. <laughs> Well, it was in my favorite movie, Almost Famous. That's, I forgot about that. Yeah. 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 I tell you what, I was speaking of Almost Famous, like I I forgot about the song Tiny Dancer for years. You know, it comes on our local classic music station, Q104. Q104 has this way of um, making you not like a classic rock song, even if it's good, because they play it too damn much. But when Tiny Dancer came on in that scene where the guitar player was going to leave the band and they got him back on the bus... And then that song starts to play and they all start singing it. That was a great moment in that movie. That movie, even though it was about rock, it was just Cameron Crowe has a way of really making music an essential part of a movie, whether it's a rock movie or a movie about a, a sports promoter, whatever. He's just really good at that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it was an enjoyable movie. Yeah, it was. But they it was. Plan on going on the road. Thunderclap mm -hmm. Newman did not plan to undertake live performances, but they had to relent once that song hit number one. They had to. So so they hit the road, and they even had Jimmy McCulloch's older brother, Jack, playing drums for a 26-tour, uh, 26 a 26-date tour of England and Scotland in support of Deep Purple. I'm sure that caused tensions. I mean, were they ready to tour? Because that's, that's big. Like, one minute you're in the studio, next minute you shoved out on the road, you're in the music business because you had a hit single and 15 year old Jimmy, you know, and it's like either you embrace it or it's like, whoa, some people just yeah. drop them out, you know? Yeah. Well, in, in 1970, they released another album that uh, was critically acclaimed. It was called Hollywood Dream, produced by Pete Townsend again. But that particular song I was talking about, it's like, wow, Jimmy McCulloch, 15 years old. Oh, and by the way, Jimmy McCulloch. He's a member of the 26 Club. He died at 26 years old. Isn't that a club? Yeah. Why? Right. No. Was that Hendrix and uh, Joplin? Well, yeah. I, I'm not. I think it's 26 or 27. Yeah, 20, I think it was 27. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Way too young. Yeah. And Jimmy, I think he was uh, drinking, right? He was just yeah, a really heavy drinker. Old, yeah, yeah. And apparently it was, you know, cocaine and and morphine and you know and things like that. Apparently. And then that that's him playing on Maybe I'm Amazed, right? That's his solo. He plays the guitar solo on that, yeah. That's just one of the best solos in rock. Uh, you know, just so well done. And he died too early because, you know, you know, maybe he would have stayed with the wings. Who knows? But, you know, when people die, when these musicians die, it hurts because musicians have a story to tell. They have music to give us, and it, it hurts. If they die at 80 or 90, it's understood, you know, then you, you appreciate their life. But... And they died young and they had something that they had so much more to say. You know, it's like when Steve Ray Vaughan died and just so many people, it's sad. It's, it's, it, 
you know, it's, it's yeah. really the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, so I was doing, I was doing some research and it's a shame Lou's not here tonight, but he's having a good night with, uh, with his son. I found out about Bob Welch. We were talking about that the other day, right? Uh, yeah. Why was he left out of the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Was it anything to do with Mick? Please don't tell me that. And no, it had to do with um, royalties. Ah. When he, <coughs> excuse me, when he joined Fleetwood Mac, they agreed to split all the royalties evenly from all the album sales. Right. But apparently, uh, John McVie, Mick Fleetwood, and Christine uh, McVie went behind his back and signed another deal for for a higher royalty rate for themselves. So he alleges he sued Christine McVie, John McVie, and Mick Fleetwood for breach of contract for back royalties that were owed to him. He he said he was underpaid royalties. Mm. So this is where the big rift came in. Right. And he says, and actually the lawsuit was settled, so they did have to pay him. So it was true in that sense. The lawsuit was settled for an undisclosed amount, which I assume has six digits. Yeah. Or seven or six zeros anyway. And it and it didn't hurt their finances. Let's let's be honest, you know. Yeah. So, but the controversy, though. So he he figures that because when Fleetwood Mac was inducted into the Hall of Fame, and the original members, Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer, Danny Kerwin, were all there, as were Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Welch, who anchored the band for several years, was not. He felt that the legal battle within the band soured the committee to include him. So, and and he claims here, my era was a bridge era, which is exactly what Lou had said last week, that, you know, he was the bridge. So um, he kind of made up with Mick Fleetwood. So he figures now, in 2003, he was asked, you know, what, what do you think happened? Because he, re, he reconnected with Mick Fleetwood. He went backstage and goes, he now, he now blames, Bob Welch now says that the Rock and Roll Hall Committee, which is kind of what Lou said, it's industry insiders such as Ahmet Erdogan and Jan Werner. They did not like him and her style and because of the lawsuit and all that prevented him from being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is like, it's a really petty thing. It's really, it's a bullshit move. And, and there's someone else in that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by the name of Jimmy Iovine, I believe. And he's another one, you know, he's produced some of the best stuff in rock and roll, but with him, it's the money and uh, it's a business. And um, also, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Fleetwood Mac's manager, was he, was it Irving Azoff? Same as the Eagles, because uh, if it was, I, I think so. Yeah, at that he's time, known, look what he did with the Eagles. I mean, you know, he takes sides, and uh, he's you know he's making money while he's getting all these thick. You know, hey, Don Felder's making trouble here. You know, I could be wrong about all this, but you know, Mick, yeah. I so, don't know how honest his book is, but 
he admits he doesn't know much about the business. He just gets led. And so that whole thing could have been like, all right, you know, you're not in the band anymore because Fleetwood Mac is his life. And, uh, but yeah. Lou's right. Bob Welch deserved yeah, it. So because Bob Welch's, his once diplomatic relationship had become acrimonious. In yeah. 1994, Welch sued Fleetwood and the McVees and the band attorney and Warner Brothers for breach of contract related to underpayment of royalties. So this is where the whole controversy came to be as to why he was not there in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But those that, that know that period of Fleetwood Mac, any real Fleetwood Mac fan, they, they know him. And I love the influence he had on the Mac. He had a great influence. Yeah. And of course, it, it he moved to uh, he moved to Nashville. He moved around a little bit. Then he ended up in Nashville. And um, he had undergone, undergone spinal surgery. And despite the surgery, you know, doctors told him the prognosis was very poor. So, um, you know, I guess he was in considerable pain. And on, in 2012, on June 7th, Welsh died by suicide, shooting himself in his Nashville home. Which is tragic. Yeah. 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 Suicides left, uh, left a nine-page suicide note and a love letter for his wife. He was sixty-six years old only. Wow! Wow! Yeah. So that I, I thought we'd go into that because that was uh, we were all wondering why he was excluded from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yep. Yep. And then Fleetwood Mac, more so in my opinion than the Eagles. They end of, I think, even more so than the Rolling Stones. I think Fleetwood Mac is the ultimate corporation of rock and roll. They're a rock band, but they're a corporation because through the years, they've unceremoniously gone on without key members not being there. They have to keep going, moving on. Hell, they did an album without Stevie Nicks or Lindsey Buckingham. Um, it just, the machine has to keep rolling, at least with the Stones. Well, now, you know, they're continuing without Charlie, but I'm sure if Keith Richards couldn't play, they wouldn't move on, you know. Um, Eagles, they're getting there. They're getting rid you know, there's down to two guys and they're still playing. But uh, the Cleveland Max, it's a corporation and it just keeps chugging along and it will until they die. It's a lot of money to be made. Well, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, there's people who want, like, you know, like the Rolling Stones, there's people who want to see that. True. You're right. You're right. I, I would see Fleetwood Mac if the tickets weren't so damn expensive. I've never seen them. <laughs> um, but you're right. And, and, you know, that's the thing. We complain about, oh, these bands, they keep touring and the tickets are so much. Well, people are going. And that's why they're still touring, charging $200 a ticket, because there's people willing to pay it. So if fans don't like it, don't buy the tickets. That's always been my opinion. And if you're mad at Fleetwood Mac, don't go, you know, but there's there's a lot of people that will fill up an arena to see Fleetwood Mac. So, and that's good. You know, at least people are going to see rock shows. Rock and roll is still alive and well. Yeah, yeah. And while we're on the subject of, uh, uh, I wanted to mention, because Lou had said last week in passing, I was, to, I was talking about, I was talking about, I think I was talking about Tusk. And uh, with the song Sarah, is that on Tusk? Yes, yes, I yeah. love that. Song. And Lou had, said, Lou had said, well, she stole the song. 
Really? I didn't hear that. Well, there's always been that speculation because in 19, uh, I don't know, let's say 1979 or whatever, 78, whatever it was, someone had uh, written a poem and and they sent it to Warner Brothers unsolicited. So this woman's poem was drowning in the sea of love where everyone would love to drown. Mm. And obviously, you know, the beginning of that, uh, that song, Sarah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, she was sued for plagiarism over, you know, the person uh, had written that song or that poem, whatever you want to call it. And she, Stevie Nicks kind of defended, said no, that she didn't steal it. But it's kind of a stretch, don't you think? The woman sends in to Warner Brothers, their record company, drowning in the sea of love where everyone would love to drown. Right. I mean, she says that she has a demo version of it. I mean, if you're writing, if you're working on the song, you're going to demo it up, right? Right. And she and so on the cassette that she demoed up, it said 1978. So the lawsuit, the lawsuit was dropped. The uh, the, the complainant said that, you know, they, they agreed there was no plagiarism. So Stevie Nicks won the lawsuit. But uh, there's people who don't believe it because she could have had a cassette and just wrote 1978 on it. And we'll see. This was a year before the album came out. See, so. Yeah. You know, the yeah. people who are people who believe it and people who don't believe it. I mean, but, it, it goes it, it's a very gray area because also you weren't there. We weren't there when Stevie Nicks was writing that song. And maybe somebody said like she had a confidential. She Stevie Nicks is big on confidential friends that help her with her music. Somebody could have said, hey, how about these lyrics? She may not have known. I mean, to give her credit or she might have just thought, yeah, I can, you know, use it. We will never know. And. The fact that, that that person suing dropped the lawsuit means that they're on the hook possibly for big legal uh, costs. Well, now, yeah, also, right, because, you know, Warner Brothers has a conference room full of lawyers and the person, you know, saying, I wrote that, well, they can't afford anything. Right, so, you know, you wonder if they were just gold digging I don't know how many people would just out of the blue say Sarah was my song. So you got to kind of think maybe it's true when people send lyrics and that's their fault that they sent lyrics to a record label, you know, just like that. Chances are they will get stolen. You got to watch your, your intellectual property, you know? Yes, you do. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the lawsuit was dropped. So, and it said no plagiarism, but, there's people who believe that, uh, you know, she just took a cassette and wrote 1978. <laughs> <laughs> Hell, I got cassettes laying all over. Yeah, I right, right. <laughs> well, you know what? I, even though I said Fleetwood Mac's a corporation, they're a good yeah. corporation because I could still listen. Even the worst Fleetwood Mac album has songs I like. So, you know, I love Fleetwood Mac. It's just they are a corporation. Big time. Big time. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, the Grateful Dead's a corporation, too. Yeah, right. yeah, yep, that's right, and it's what d- did them in the end because they kept touring to support their fa- the families of their road crew and all their employees, and they felt the need to keep touring, and that's kind of what you know they shouldn't have toured when Jerry was not it, well, and so but they were a corporation, a very good corporation. Some people would say no, but 
unlike Lars Ulrich, they never sued their fans for recording a show or sharing their stuff, you know. <laughs> what, what do you mean? What, what do you mean, Lars Ulrich? So Metallica? Well, that's what turned me. Metallica, back in the day, they were like the heavy metal Grateful Dead. They would have sections where people could record their shows. They were, like, cool with it. All of a sudden, Lars Ulrich came out, and, and there's, there's two sides to this argument. There's people that say he was valid. He came out against um, people posting their music without paying, whatever. Came out against people recording the shows. And he sued, uh, what was that, Napster? Remember Napster? Yeah, well, yeah, he was, he was really on the Napster thing, yep. He sued one of their fans for a lot of money for posting their stuff. Now, I have two opinions on Napster. I, I'm, I don't like the way this new generation of people think that they could just get everything for free off the internet and never pay for it. Look, back in the day when we had cassettes, uh, Perry, you would, you would make a cassette of an album for me. All right, fine. Maybe we were technically stealing music, but we also bought a lot of music. So I would buy 10 albums. Maybe I'd get a few albums copied and even CDs. We were copying CDs, but we always bought. Right. I think Lars, some people like I was mad at Lars, but then I heard people in defense of him said, you know what? We see a whole generation of people that just want to get their music for free. How can the industry, how can we continue to make music? And you see the result of it now is that albums don't sell. It's a shame. Albums don't sell. Bands just have to keep touring. Whereas back in the golden days of music, it was the album sold a ton of money and that tour was merely promoting the album. So the industry has changed, right? It has. I mean, look, Fleetwood Mac, Tusk, right? The money they, or even rumors, the money they put into those albums, the amount of time to record it would never happen today because it would be, no one's going to buy the album. It's going to go up streaming and we'll get two pennies, you know, a couple cents for each download on Spotify. So it does affect, I think it affects the whole album making thing. And I'm, and I'm an old fashioned album guy. I believe that I don't like singles. I like albums, but the whole music industry, I think it's kind of reverted to where we were in the early 60s and late 50s. I mean, rock isn't dead, but if you look at the charts of the early 60s or even the late 60s, there was a lot of schlock at the number one position. So you, maybe uh, the Beatles would be number four and then the top three would be stuff that you hated. I think we've gone back to that, but nobody's buying. I buy CDs. I'm, I'm old fashioned. I will buy a CD if I like it. I use Spotify, but if I like what I hear, I do purchase the CD. I just feel the artist needs to get some money. Well, you know, think uh, like Amy Mann, right? Uh-huh. Doesn't she sell her music on her own website? Not sure, but if she does, all power to her. Right. So, in other words, is well, obviously people are lazy because they just want to go to Spotify or Apple and just, you know, oh, let me do this, that, that, but, you know, but if you want to listen to Amy Mann, you go to Amy Mann's website and download some of her stuff. If you want to go to, you know, you know, Wilco, you go to Wilco, you know, whatever it may be. Maybe that's what it has to become to bypass Spotify and Pandora and whoever these uh, streaming well, companies are. Yeah, Wilco has all their albums up on Spotify, by the way. And I pay, I pay 14 bucks a month to Spotify. Because I listen to so much music that I can't possibly buy everything that, you know, you fed my music needs for years. You were like copying stuff for me because I can't stop. Like I've listened to so many different kinds of music. 
I have musical ADD, so Spotify satisfies that. You know, if I want to hear Nancy Sinatra, I look it up. Boom, it's on I Spotify. Have a lot of stuff that you copied from me that you gave me. You gave me Lucinda Williams, one I've never heard from her. You gave me a Paul Weller, Twenty Two Dreams, which is, turns out to be one of my faves. But I listened to it. When I listened to it, I listened to it on the CD that you got me. Right, and and so you buy music though. You, you and I and Lou. We're music lovers, so we do buy music, and there's a lot of people out there. Like, So you may get something from your friend, a copy of something, but you're also going out. It's supporting the industry and the bands they do need to support. So I, you know what? If I listen to the Eagles, Hotel California on Spotify, and, they, and I, they're only getting two cents for my listen, they don't need that, you know, the Rolling Stones. You know? Metallica are filthy rich. Yeah. So you – you know, they, right when they when they perform, yeah, they're gonna sell out. Whatever, whatever any venue they decide to play, they're gonna sell it out. Yeah, they really are a heavy metal Grateful Dead. They they are an industry, and they do. I gotta say, I'm not the I'm not the. I was a Metallica fan. I liked them before they got big in America, and they had their first couple albums. I have them on Mega Force, but um, they do try to give their fans what they want and i that's good you know they don't chintz their fans but uh um, you know that's just they're doing their thing they're making money any way they can whether it's they sell whiskey blackened whiskey or whatever <laughs> i i like i mean i saw a few documentaries on them and I, I i enjoyed it but like the band you know a bunch of nice guys and i, I even saw a documentary when jason newstead was still in the band but this drummer lars that fucking guy is annoying man <laughs> <laughs> He um yeah yeah. <laughs> well, well he'll, goes, he'll go um 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 like um well you know I'm um, like like dude you know come on Lars get the gum out of your mouth please <laughs> and get the well, toothpick take the toothpick out of your mouth too pal you know it, it, and of course he's an artist so you know he's yeah. gonna sell his paintings for a million dollars or what someone will overpay for these paintings because it's Lars. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Miles Davis did it. They all do it, you know? Um, But again, the thing with Lars and the reason I stopped listening to Metallica for years, there are two reasons is when he sued his fan, I just did it. But then when you watch Led Zeppelin song remains the same, you see them going after a guy that was selling Led Zeppelin pictures. And remember Peter Grant was, had the guy arrested, you know, and, um it's it's always been like that you know actually peter grant led zeppelin probably started that thing of uh you're gonna get sued if you sell our stuff without our bootleg uh bootleg um like you know funny it's because uh my lady and i were at a flea market today out oh out there somewhere in uh say county and it was in in a parking lot in a property that the elks lodge out there had owned and there were a lot of vendors out there, and they had like they led Zeppelin T-shirts, and you know the Who T-shirts, and all these T-shirts. Like, are they just bootlegging these things? You oh, know? sure, sure. And you know what? Peter Grant died, so you know you could sell Led Zeppelin stuff. What you can't sell—it's a known fact. I used to go to the record conventions and buy bootlegs. The record convention, the North Jersey record convention in in Montfail, New Jersey, was the best. I would buy tons of bootlegs. I bought so many Led Zeppelin bootlegs. If you sell Disney, you're in trouble. And we literally saw 
a guy selling something Disney, something like it was a, a poster that wasn't legitimate. They came in, shut him down, arrested him. That's the one thing you'd never do is Disney. But yeah, Led Zeppelin, yeah, they're all over. You know, what, who's going to stop you? So what are you saying? Disney has scouts out there that are oh, looking sure. for Sure. <laughs> Don't ever screw with Disney. Don't screw with the wall. <laughs> uh, not... But um, no, in, in Song Remains the Same, there's a scene where, um, you know, it's during the concert, they were filming everybody outside of Madison Square Garden. All the, it's a chaos, you know, people trying to get in. It's, there's great scenes where a guy actually gets in, a, a, a policeman actually lets him in the door. He's like, come on in. I didn't see anything. But there yeah. was a scene where a guy was selling pictures of the band out on the sidewalk. He got brought in, and Peter Grant, as you know, three hundred pounds, very imposing. Was like, yeah, he uh, he said, "I what do you say?" Something to paraphrasing, but if I see one penny made off the Led Zeppelin name that we don't get, you know, he was like pissed, and that guy must have been scared shitless, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's tough. Well, you know, sometimes you have to track down the bootleggers sometimes too. But like I said. We were at a flea market today, and like there's, like I said, Led Zeppelin shirts, The Who, well, you know, all of these bands, like they're just, you know, they're not approved. So, not. yeah, and if they're well made, it's worth it. But I remember, remember going to concerts at the Meadowlands, right? And uh, I was in high school, and I was literally at the Meadowlands maybe twice a month seeing a concert. I mean, we just because we're thirty minutes from from the arena. Who I only went there twice. Who did you see there? Oh my god. I mean, I saw my first concert at the Meadowlands Arena. I don't remember it. It was 79. I was only 10 years old. It was Eric Clapton. My second concert I do remember was Joe Walsh and Stevie Nicks. Then once I got to high school and between my best friend Kevin Collimore in high school and his mother who drove us. And then when I got my license, we just saw everybody. But the first time I went to see Jethro Tull, the Under Wraps tour, and we go in and we're high schoolers. So we barely had money for the tickets. Yeah. We wanted to buy a shirt, you know, and I'm like, I can't afford the shirt. You know, you have the money. So outside, you got the guys selling the shirts in the parking lot for five bucks. So I bought a shirt and I'm like, cool. I took it home and my mom was like, you got to wash it before you wear it. There's chemicals. I washed it. It was so faded after the first wash. <laughs> I go to high school. I go to school and I'm, they're all making fun of me. They're like, "How? That was like yesterday. How'd that shirt get faded?" You know? So I, I, I learned one. I've done that myself back right now. Wearing a shirt that's very comfortable, but it's pink because I, <laughs> you know, I put it in with bleach or something and whatever. You know, whatever. It happens. It happens. It's it's a laundry screw up. But oh, Perry, I I saw the Kinks probably five times at the Ventilance. Ventilance was my place. When you're a teenager, you like arenas. When you get older, you hate them. So it was um, called the Brendan Byrne Arena or something back then. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember I saw Boston when they had their big comeback with um, Third Stage, and we went. And after the show, I drove, but my car wouldn't start. So we're trying to start it. And I'm like, guys, this is bad. Yeah, Parking lot's emptying out. All of a sudden – a group of people come up and they start talking to us and it's Carol Miller who was doing a remote from the show uh, reporting on the show as she used to do on WPLJ. You know, they used to have like, we're at the show, whatever. She talked to us for like 20 minutes. She was so cool to us, but you know, it was a cold night. So we talked to her. We're like, great. But then she left and they're like, 
got to get our damn car started. We eventually got it started. Um, oh, Dave, I saw David Lee Roth. I got boot, I got counterfeit tickets. It's the first time I ever got counterfeit tickets. I, I got in, but they were fake, and someone had my seat. I saw, oh, man, the list goes on. I just saw so many bands there. Phil Collins. Eh, it goes on and on. Eric Clapton like four or five times. Did you ever see a show in the, the football stadium? Yeah. Uh, my big show, well, it's the first time I saw Springsteen was at the Giants Stadium. But the show that I liked was um, when Genesis were doing their big tour, Invisible Touch Tour. They um, hopelessly sold out. Hopelessly. We couldn't get tickets. All of a sudden, this is like the first time they did this. Two weeks before the show, they had some tickets released. So I went right down to um, I went to Nanuet Mall in Macy's. They had a ticket Ticketron outlet. Yeah, and I got online. I got my tickets right, and they were floor. They were on the floor. It was like that was so cool. So a bunch of us high schoolers, you know, we're going to see Genesis, but it turned out to be like one of the hottest days of the decade. It was like a hundred degrees. It was just crazy, but uh, yeah, that was good because we were close, and I and I could actually see Phil Collins and I could see the band. That was a great show, Paul. Paul Young opened up. Is that who it is? Every Paul time, Young. really? Yeah. Every time you say goodbye, whatever. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, up. I think it was great a Paul Young song. Yep, great show. Right. But, yeah, and then I, I saw David Bowie at Giant Stadium with um, Joe Satriani. Opened up. That was a great show. Wow. David Bowie. He only had a quartet. He had Adrian Ballou on guitar, a bass player, and a drummer. It was the Sound of Vision tour. And just to have David Bowie only have four guys on stage, because usually he has like 30 people in the band, you know. That was a great show. Yeah, great memories of Jersey. Great memories. Wow, that's pretty cool. I, I was only at, you know, one show at the football stadium and one show at the arena, and that was it. Yeah, well, you know what? There was a point, I think, I don't know. I, one of the shows I saw, I was sitting there, and I, I – I was obviously like 20 years old at that point. I went, I think I saw Rush and I'm sitting there going, the sound sucks. It's echoey. I can't hear anything. I'm, I'm out of shape. I can't get up to my seat because the Meadowlands, the garden, if you have the cheap seats, an escalator will take you up to those cheap seats. In the Meadowlands, you have one entry in and you have these concrete steps, you know? So I remember just sitting there going, nah, no more, no more arena shows. That was it for me. Every <laughs> time I was at the garden, I, I was always on the floor. Nice. Always on the floor. Well, you know, we had we had a friend who, like, you know, this guy Bobby, who, like, yeah, he's the ticket guy. You know, give him twenty five bucks, and he'll get you clapped in tickets, or you know, whatever it was. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the guy in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, right? That's your Van Halen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? You can't tell you something. Yeah, my biggest memory at the Meadowlands though was, you know, I'm a big Keith Emerson guy. Uh, when Emerson Lake and Powell, so that was a big t- comeback for Keith Emerson. Cozy Powell, Emerson Lake and Cozy Powell, yeah, great, great lineup. I loved them. They were great. But we saw the show sixth row in front of Keith. So I'm seeing my idol. I'm a sophomore in high school. I was just, I lost my shit. You know, I was just like, I didn't go crazy. I was just like, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm in front of Keith. And uh, but it was funny was the eternal fight, the eternal friction between Greg Lake and Keith Emerson. At one point during the show, Greg Lake just flipped the bird to Keith Emerson. I'm like, yeah, they're wow. still fighting. They're <laughs> Madonna, right? 
And at that show, Greg Lake uh, dedicated Lucky Man to Howard Stern because they were on the show that day. Uh, it was a good show. And then at the end of the show, uh, Keith, Keith Emerson always does this thing where he brings out the Hammond and he jumps on top of it, stabs it, and does the whole thing. And when he jumped on the Hammond, him and the Hammond went off the front of the stage. We were like, oh, my God, I saw Keith Emerson die. Nah, he was fine. <laughs> so, yeah, he used to rock his organ back and forth, right? He looked a little yeah. over. Yep, yep. He would just see it was it's, he was like the Jimi Hendrix of the Hammond organ, you know. <laughs> that was a great show, though. That was great. Cozy Powell was a, essential. He fit good with the loud, bombastic keyboards of Keith Emerson. Who, who is he before? Like you know, I've only ever heard of him through Emerson, Lincoln Powell. So who is Cozy Powell? Um. Well, he was with the Jeff Beck group, and then he's done. He's done R. He did a lot of R and B. He did jazz flavored stuff but he became known as a hard rock heavy metal drummer because he joined uh rainbow richie blackmore's rainbow and he was wearing the uh, studded wristbands early on so he had that look and then afterwards he joined michael shanker group he was in white snake and he's a heavy hitting drummer but he was also he was an incredibly he could be very jazzy great drummer and he passed too young he passed because he was on a cell phone driving and he went off the road. That was so, oh, that bummed me out. Yeah, he was talking to his daughter, I think. Um, but he had a great legacy, great drummer. Cozy Powell. Cozy Powell. <laughs> so, so, I was watching a movie the other day, and when I watch a movie, the only credits I really enjoy watching are the last ones that roll. Or me the, too. The music credits, the yeah. songwriting credits. And I always love to say, you know, oh, wow, this guy wrote that song and this. Well, anyway, in this particular movie I was watching the other day, I was watching the movie credits roll, and one of the one of the songs that was used in the movie was Low Down by Boss Gags. Hmm. And, and so when it rolled, it said written by David Page and Boss Gags, or they used Boss Gags' real name, which was, I, I don't know. But and I'm thinking this guy, David Page, I've seen that name so much before and like was he in toto or something like that like you know what uh, david page and the Picaro brothers were toto <laughs> yeah so david page p-a-i-c-h or is it page or page p-a-i-c-h page okay, david page yeah, yeah. He, this guy wrote he wrote some wonderful songs apparently right mm -hmm. i mean Page's first big song, the first song they wrote that really went anywhere was in 1974. He wrote, do you know Houston, I'm Coming to See You by Glenn Campbell? Do you know that I, song? I, uh, I may have heard it, but I just can't recall it at the moment. Yeah, he, he wrote that. But um, so this guy does it. He, he's everywhere. Like you'll see his name in so many places. But when he did that Boz Skaggs song. That was really interesting because when Vasquez recorded Silk Degrees, which was his, probably his best album or yeah. most successful album, I don't want to say best, you know, it was basically the core of Toto before there was a Toto. It was uh, Page, David Hungate on bass, and Jeff Picaro on drums. Well, so Lido Shuffle, that Lido Shuffle thing, that's all it's Jeff Picaro. Scott David Page is a keyboard player? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, now he's he's written songs for other people. I don't know if you there was a song in '78 by Sherilyn, "Get to Be Real," got to be real. And uh, if I sang it for you, you'd know it. But he wrote that. 
He wrote Lady Lady Love Me One More Time for George Benson. The guy, you know, and and he was he was musical director on a good chunk of the Thriller album by Michael Jackson. He's such a, a prolific producer, arranger, as well as a songwriter that even though he doesn't tour with Toto, he will always be on their albums. Well, like, let me ask you this. Yeah. On speaking of Michael Jackson, now Steve Lukather played guitar on that, did he not? Yes. Now About was, four songs. I heard he was the guy that came up with that main riff. I heard Steve Lukather came up with that riff. Is that true? I can't confirm for sure. Boy, I wish I could get Tom Spallone on another cell phone right now. But I do believe it's my, I know he talked about it in his book and he does play on it. He's doing that riff. He's the one playing that riff. So yeah, let's just say he wrote it. Wow. Um, so, you know, it's funny. He jokes. Lukather's got the best sense of humor. He's like, I'm on beat it. But everybody knows. They just think of Eddie Van Allen. <laughs> so this so. guy, David Page, did he write like those big hits for Toto? Oh, yeah. I mean, if he didn't, like, he wrote Africa, Rosanna, um, Hold the Line. If he didn't write them himself, he co-wrote them. But uh, all their, there's tons of their big hits. And Steve Lukather, too. He wrote some uh, a lot of their songs. Um, but, like, Africa, what makes Africa an amazing song is he was able to get the word Serengeti in the song and have a word rhyme with it. I mean, tell me, you know, it's like, <laughs> All right, we're gonna have to use the word Serengeti. It's gonna have to flow rhythmically, and then have have you rhyme it with something. He did it. <laughs> it's, it's like those wacky Steve Miller rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, don't and don't discount Steve Picaro, the keyboardist from uh, Toto. He wrote "Human Nature." Remember that song for Michael Jackson? Um, yeah, I'm not a big Michael Jackson fan, but I'm sure. Yeah, I've heard, yeah. it was a huge song, but. When I didn't know he wrote it, I was ignorant on that. And when I saw Toto on a tour about four years ago, they were in the middle of the set. They all say, you know, they kind of like talk about each other. And so Lukather says, Paige, he wrote these songs. And then they get to Steve Picaro and he says, yeah, my daughter came home from school. She got hit by a little boy at the playground. And she said, daddy, I thought he liked me, but he hit me. And and he said, well, that's kind of like human nature. And then he played the song, you know, I was like, holy shit, he wrote human nature. And if you take away Michael Jackson, you, know, you may not like, I know, you don't, you know, not, may not like Michael Jackson. It's a great song. It's now, an is awesome song. Is still alive? Yeah, yeah. So he, um, unfortunately, what? the Piqueros, uh, Jeff Piquero died and Mike Piquero died. But C. Piquero is the last Piquero alive. But where I understand there was a lawsuit a total lawsuit with Steve Lukather and controlling of the name. Well, this happens many times with a lot of bands who controls the name, who owns the name Toto and this and that, like which side was he on? Was he with Lukather or was he against Lukather? Um, you know, it's funny because that lawsuit came about when I saw them the last time I saw him at the Bergen performing arts center in Anglewood, small, small venue. Yeah. And it was the next to last show. And Steve Lukather was saying at the show, you know, this is where we're splitting up. The reason they were splitting up was because they were going into a heated lawsuit. And I believe, I don't know the specifics, so, but I had something to do with Jeff Picaro's wife. Um, she through Jeff, I don't know the whole story. Uh, so then um, Steve Lukather was basically saying he was going to have the group together, but give him another name. 
Uh, I think it's been settled because I think Toto are back together. But um, David Page probably, he's had health issues, you know, and so you probably won't tour with them. But he's like, again, you know, it's like, unlike the Beach Boys, Toto utilized David Page. Like, they're never going to say you can't work with us, you know, because <laughs> he, it, it, they're a family. I'm not. I'm not a huge. I'm not a fan of, of this band at all. But these songs, like "I Felt the Rain Down in Africa" and like uh, "Rosanna," like whoa, these are huge, huge songs. Absolutely. And if you listen to that Boz Gags album, Boz, Boz Gags album, "Silk Degrees," what can I say? Uh, just so. Like, oh my God, they're, they're they're great songs. You know these guys. They're just. Then you know it, it kills me. Is like to be some people are great musicians, but they can't write a song for the life of them. That then you got people who are great songwriters, but they can't play. These guys are great musicians, and they can write songs. That's what's amazing about them. Just it's awesome. And they are you gotta say they're part of rock, you know, rock and roll or pop, whatever you want to say. They really are a rock band. They never wanted to be a pop band, but they got thrown into it. They're just one of the best bands ever. They were know? really commercial, really commercial. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, uh, I just what I had against them, probably. Probably. Yeah. They're very glossy, very slick. And Lucather in his autobiography, he goes into that. He's like, look, we were in the industry. We got, you know, the record labels telling us you got to do this, do that. That's what you got to do. Yeah. I can't play like shit. You know what I mean? Like, I'm good. (laughs) This is what I do. Yeah. 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 It's, um, you know, they they took the plunge they took the plunge into the music industry and they got involved, you know what I mean? And they, they made the money, but um, you know, it's funny when you listen to um, Lido shuffle, that bass, you know, that bass sound, that's David Hungate. He was, he was a founding member of Toto. He was a founding member of Toto. He was their original bass player. And he quit after all their success with Toto four. He just wanted to commit more time to his family. And uh, but now he's it's I said it's that rhythm section was Toto on that album, great album. But Silk Degrees is is so good, such a good album. Well, well, that's great, and and I hope the royalties that these guys, you know, they keep getting their royalties, and uh, well, of course now, who knows what the royalties are like now? Right, right. Well, right. yeah, it's funny you say that because I looked up a, I was looking at David Page, songs he wrote, so. He wrote Got to Be Real from Cheryl Lynn, but about four different artists through the 80s and 90s have covered that song. So he's still getting royalties. Like, So if, if someone covers one of his songs and sells modestly, he's getting more money. Yeah, he still gets oh. royalties. And the way, that's the way it should be. Yep. Yeah, all the power to him. And Lucather's the, the working guy of the group. And he's, he's you know, he's he has some hit songs with Toto. But he tours when he's not with Toto. He's out with his band playing tiny jazz clubs in New York. Like he never stops. He's he says I tour to pay my mortgage, you know, and that's all the power to him too, you know. Yeah, yep. Let me uh, let me play something for. I'm going to play an opening guitar riff here, right? And you let me know if you know who it is, okay? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
idea who that is? You're killing me. I heard this song the other day. It's my you favorite I know album by Credence Clearwater Revival. Right. It's called, it's called Pendulum. Uh-huh. That, it is a great record. That is the opening track. That's called Pag, Pagan Baby. Right. And it is, it's just a great record. It, 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 I think it was their next to last record. Was that the album where everyone contributed music? No, no, no. That was Mardi Gras, the, the, uh, the, um, the, the last one where uh, the other guys wanted to write songs. Yeah. Yeah. This, this was, this was a pendulum is a, a great record. Absolutely great record. You know, it's, you know, what's interesting about that little guitar riff. The reason it, I, I, I now I remember I heard it cause I was listening to, um, Dwight Yoakam station on Sirius and, and he plays a lot of Creedence. And when I heard it, I thought it was a newer song because the way the guitar stops, it sounds like a sample. Like that. Yeah. And uh, I said, like, what is this? Like a new band? I look, it's Creedence. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I had, I had all, of course I had all the Creedence records because that was the first band I really loved. But yeah. the songs on here, for instance, this, this record, that's the opening track. Pagan, Pagan Baby, Pagan Baby. Second song is Sailor's Lament. And it's like a little, almost like a little reggae thing. Oh, Sailor Man, shame, it's a shame. Then they have like a soul song, Chameleon. You keep on changing your face like a chameleon. It's, it's just like a, with saxophones and everything. It's really great. And then, of course, Have You Ever Seen the Rain? Smash hit. Yep. That's and, one of my favorite songs of theirs. Oh, that is, I mean, who didn't have the 45 on Fantasy Records, right? <laughs> yeah. And Wish I Could Hide Away, Wish I Could, like, great. These, like, this is the thing that gets me about John Fogarty. Like, he always plays the hits. I would pay $100 to go see him in a casino to play the album tracks, to play some of these albums. I mean, these were great songs that people are, well, I'm sure there's plenty of people that are aware of it. But for instance, now on on side two of the record, the, f- the first song is "Born to Move," and he plays the Hammond organ on the thing. He he's playing the organ, <coughs> and then "Hey Tonight," another smash hit. Right? Might have been the flip side to "Have You Ever Seen the Rain." I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, no, you know what? Fantasy would have released them separately. They, yeah. right. <laughs> they wanted to make their money. <laughs> yeah. Because I, you're right, because then it has a song called It's Just a Thought, but I noticed something strange. Beautiful, beautiful song, beautiful album track. And of course, Melina. Melina, where you going to, love? You know, she's, she's dancing with the sheriff. And it had an instrumental called Rude Awakening, which is, a, you know, it's a six minute jam, but it's like, this is a great record, man. Credence Clearwater Revival. You know what? At that Wally Hader Studios, famous uh, recording studio in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Um, I tell you what, I am ignorant on this album because I'm looking at the track list. I only know the two singles from the album, and uh, I'm going to listen to it because uh, I did. You read um, John Fogarty's autobiography? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. All right. So it sounds like when they made this album, they were just you know they were touring and they were tired and. 
but he was also, I think he was starting to expand his songwriting ability and, you know, he was starting to like do different things. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, it, it didn't like, if you talk to casual fans, they don't talk about this album. So I'm definitely going to check it out because Pagan Baby is, that's a great little guitar. Oh, yeah. 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 But, but I mean, John Fogarty, he plays the saxophone on there. He plays the Fender Rhodes piano. He plays the organ. He, <laughs> I could do what? everything. He's the producer, the arranger. He's, he's, he's sick. He's another one under yeah. underrated because everyone knows his songs, but they don't know what he did. Yeah, there were no other things. musicians on the, on this. If you listen to this record, I, I mean, like Born to Move and all these, you know, or it's all them. It's all them. Yeah, there's no yeah. Other musicians. And, you know, fantasy like that because, you know, they didn't have to pay for uh, session musicians. <laughs> Saul, Saul was like, good, we don't have to bring anybody in. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's funny. When I read the book, the, the one thing I remembered was how he said when they did um, the, the last album, uh, Mardi Gras. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the last album? Yeah. He said that, you know, they all came to him. We want to write our own songs. He's like, okay, go ahead. Write your own songs. Then one of them, like, I think they came back to him and they was like, could you help us? And he's like, No. I'm not helping you. You want to write your own songs? Write your own songs. <laughs> it, it, it's it's the work the work ethic. For instance, remember they had a huge record called Cosmos Factory. Remember that one? Mm -hmm. It was a huge, huge record. This album, this album, Pendulum, came out five months after Cosmos Factory. So this is the way this is the way they used to work. It, it wasn't forced upon them to do it. This is just what they did. They didn't yeah, take they a year. They didn't take 18 months to make a record. In 1969, Credence put out three albums. In 1970, they put out two albums. Right. This, I mean, Cosmos Factory was a huge, huge record. They put this out five months after Cosmos Factory. Right. Pension. Good work ethic. Great work ethic with that band. Yeah. You know, and they had something to say, and it was like, we're going to say it. There's a lot of music. Some bands go through this, like they just keep you know, it, it, it's going to end at some point. Like, you can't keep writing like that. But holy, and I'm looking at this. I'm looking at their their their, their output. It, it feels like they were they were putting out albums over a five-year period, not a two- or three-year period. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's amazing. There's a whole saxophone section on one of these songs played by John Fogarty. Wow. <laughs> it's incredible it's absolutely incredible yeah if you get a chance to listen to some of the album cuts i mean you know everyone's heard have you ever seen the rain and you know hey tonight and all that and they're great songs they are absolutely great songs but the album cuts are amazing this is what i this is what i love about credence is the album cuts are sometimes to me better than these singles yeah yeah oh absolutely especially with john fogarty I mean, there's some bands where the album cuts, eh, you know, but yeah, John Fogarty's one of those guys where you want to hear the album cuts. And yeah. you know what? I lucked out with John Fogarty because when he put out Centerfield, I was in high school and that was my album buying days. I would go to Music Merchant in Westwood, New Jersey and buy the newest album. So, <laughs> so I would, I would, uh, you know, I heard about John Fogarty's back and I saw the video for, you know, uh, uh, further on up the road on MTV. So I went down to Music Merchant. Like, 
I I would go the day the album was released, and John would have the boxes there, you know. So I bought Center Field, didn't think much of it, brought it home, played it. Yeah, yeah, I loved it, you know. And um, then I he had the the lawsuit where Saul Zance, yeah, uh, sued him for saying Zance can't dance, so oh, he changed yeah. it to Vance. But I'm the proud owner of the album with Vans Can't Dance. <laughs> oh, you, you have you know you have Zance Can't Dance. Oh, is that what it is? Okay, yeah. yeah it yeah. was originally Saul Zance. Okay, yeah. So he had Zance with a Z. Zance Can't Dance, but he'll steal your money. Watch him; he'll rob you blind. <laughs> he had and to the, change it to Vance Can't Dance with a V. That's what it is. But I got the original. So I'm like, that's like, I'm happy, not because it's worth money, but I got the original version of that song, the original intent. And I love the video with the little pigs dancing and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, the uh, I don't know, man, the lawsuits, gosh, what, what a shame. Oh, the guy, the poor guy, he couldn't play his own songs, but I had a co-worker in Connecticut when I worked at, uh, you know, in, when I was making CDs in Connecticut. And our salesman, he was a big Creedence guy. And he was, sorry, he was going to see uh, John Fogarty in the city. He didn't know, no one knew that he had won the lawsuit. So he goes to this place in the city to see John Fogarty. Yeah. And he comes out and he does like a few of his, you know, solo songs. And then he kind of says, we're going to play some Creedence songs. The place went crazy. Like, I wish I was there. Because all of a sudden, like, that was the first time he's able to play his songs, you know. <laughs> and he said, what a show. You know, what a show. I had a table. I had the drinks going. That must yeah. have been incredible. He's got, and, and Fogarty has, like, I think a couple of his kids are in the band, you know, like, they're playing the rhythm guitar. And uh, one, of yeah, them looks was, like his, one of them looks like his Uncle Tom Fogarty. Yeah, he was doing right? those um, lockdown things during the COVID lockdown. He was doing a, a lot of stuff on, on yeah. Facebook, and it sounded you know, good. I, yeah, but I mean, when he plays, and of course, uh, who's his drummer? Uh, Kenny Aronoff. Yeah. Right. Yep. So have have you ever heard of this group, the Punch Brothers? No, you're getting me into a new group here, Perry. They're sort of kind of this, you know, they play mandolin, they play the upright bass, acoustic guitar, they got a banjo, you know, they're really good. But I recently heard them do a version of uh, the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I was kind of blown away by it. Kind of blown away. So let me see if I could play a couple of seconds of it for you, all right? Great voice. But that could she be true? It wasn't going to be true when the gales of November came Really good. That sounds really good. Just and just over the phone here. And, and the singer plays mandolin, so he starts doing the riff, you know, on, on the mandolin. It's like, gosh, man, it's just great. Great voice. Well, tell you what, I just pulled them up and I added them to my favorite list. So you got to be listening to another band. <laughs> yeah. And they're doing it, you know, they're doing this thing like, uh, like um, 
the old T-Bone Burnett thing. They're all standing around one microphone. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Do you you know um, there was a John, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp, sorry, John Mellencamp album. Yeah. You know about that album? It's, I think it was back in 2000, maybe two, that he recorded <clears throat> on the oldest equipment, one mic, just like Sun did it. Um, and I loved hearing it. I he don't do know. Studios? Huh? Did he do it at Sun Studios? Uh, he did it all over the country. And he did a um, he did a song in a hotel. And I'm just right here. I'm, I'm trying to find it here. Oh, the, the album is called No Better Than This. It was actually 2010. And um, he would actually try to record in the same places that artists recorded in. Um, in the hotel and things like that you just hit it on the head you just got it one of the songs on the album he recorded in the same hotel room that robert johnson was recorded uh when he was you know the remote recordings and it's a you know just to hear that kind of recording because yeah we're listening to it on cd but it's okay because you hear that warmth and you know what A, a modern music listener would probably say that no better than this sounds like shit they wouldn't like it because it doesn't have highs because the drummer is in the background, you know? Yeah. It's a great album. Great. Just for that reason. I mean, the songs are good, but the fact that he did that, he actually got an old Ampex tape recorder, which I used to work with that stuff, you know, and he, he got it set up and he got the one microphone. I, I just, to me, that's like a national treasure of that album. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, so I'm really getting into lately the Punch Brothers and also this group Dawes. I really like them. They are they really good. Hmm. And I saw them Dawes because, uh, you know, Dave Letterman, we spoke the other week about Dave Letterman having this connection with Warren Zevon. Mm-hmm. So years, even years, a uh, couple, five years after uh, Warren Zevon had passed, Dawes is on the show. And um, they're on the Dave Letterman show. And Dave asks them, would you, would you guys be willing to play Warren Zevon's song? And they like, well, yeah, well, we can do that for you. Absolutely. And they played a Warren Zevon song. It was called um, Something Under the Eaves, you know, Drunk Under the Eaves or something like that. And it's like, well, they did a wonderful version of that. And like Dave Letterman appreciated it so much. But these guys are really good. These guys have talent. You know, because, you know, obviously Taylor Goldsmith was involved in the uh, the new basement tapes. Up yeah. Capital Tower, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't I have to admit, I when they first came out, uh, 107.1 The Peak, which is a great station in Westchester County. Yeah. Um, the last of the radio stations have their own playlist. They were playing them, and I didn't give them because they were, they were playing songs. I'm like, oh, they're just another one of these new millennial bands. I didn't give them a chance. And then when you told me about the new Basement tapes, and I listened, then I went back and I checked Dawes out. I'm like, I screwed that one up because they're a great band. They're really good. <laughs> they're really good. And each of these people individually, like this guy Jim James, what 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 group is he in? Is he in? Uh... Oh, uh, my morning jacket. My morning jacket. This guy is good. And he is a great voice too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. They all and this guy, the guy from Dawes, Taylor Goldsmith. What a voice! 
and and you know what on that new basement tapes they mixed so well it's almost scary it's like two bone burnett is behind it all so yeah it's like i want to say could you guys like just do a super group not do the basement tapes but do something <laughs> where you know <laughs> well they did they did they have played some shows they have they absolutely have but Elvis got the, the what I found interesting is because Elvis Costello he's a little bit older than the other guys, so he's more of a veteran. <laughs> and even Jim James and Taylor Goldsmith and they were, and even uh, who was the the brother uh, from uh, the uh, the drummer slash guitar player? Oh yeah, um, I'm the IT guy. Mumford, I should Mumford. Yeah, yeah, uh, I know Marcus who you mean. Yep. Marcus Mufford, he was saying like Elvis knows so many chords. He knows so many of these like jazz chords, and he knows so many of these these diminished like he knows like they were blown away by how many chords on the guitar Elvis Presley actually knows. (laughs) They were were blown away by that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's an elder statesman. I mean, Elvis Costello and Paul Weller—they came from the same time. You know, those two are elder statesmen of rock, but not elder like Pete Townsend. <laughs> right. But, but with, with, you know, when they were at the base, the new basement tapes with Elvis, he can harken back. He can take it back to like 1947, you know, with the chords he's choosing. You know what I mean? He can, yeah, yeah. He has all of that. He has all right. of they were they were pretty much blown away by that. But yeah, the new basement tapes, that is a great record. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is. So, um, so yeah, I'm going to be listening to the Punch Brothers and also Dawes. Is uh, I have a lot of catching up to do on Dawes because I know they've been around for a long time now. Me too. You know what? I'm working from home tomorrow. So we're going to have another hot, humid day here in New York. And I'm going to have the windows open. And I'm going to be doing my work. And I'm going to be listening to Dawes. That's going to be the, the band. Yeah. And uh, the Punch Brothers doing, doing Wrecking the Edmund Fitzgerald. I was blown <laughs> away by it. It's a great song. You know what? It's a great song. If you're going to do it, don't F it up. You know what I mean? Like, because you could really screw it up, but do it right. They did did their own rendition of it. It was completely, it was a 180 from Gordon Lightfoot. They absolutely made it their own, and which was great. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like I said, I'm hearing it over a phone, and it sounded great to me. So I'm like, I can't wait to put it on my system with my subwoofer. And just blast it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, have you got anything else you want to throw in there before we say good night? Yeah, you know what? Here we go. The prog mark comes back out. Right? Uh-huh. The prog mark is coming out. Ready, ready. Oh, I can't do my, I can't do my wine glass. Damn it. Anyway, um, <laughs> what? Well, yeah, my better quality wine glass, Mark. That's mark with plastic. Mark, mark with a Anyway, um. <laughs> So, you know, you know me, I, I got to mention Steve Wilson every show, and you guys mention R.E.M. every show. So. <laughs> um, Steve Wilson reformed Porcupine Tree, and I didn't mention it, but they're touring, and, and to a Porcupine Tree fan, this is, like, huge. It'd be like if Led Zeppelin got back together, you know? So I got my tickets for Radio City Music Hall in September. I cannot wait. Just saying it now, and you know what? I hate to tell you, but if uh, you know the the show we do after the show after I see the concert. I'm just going to be talking about it the whole show. So well, get have ready. You finished, <laughs> have you ever seen a show at Radio City before? Yeah, yeah. So I did it right this time. Um, I've seen. All right, the first show I saw at Radio City was U2 
doing a rehearsal show for the Unforgettable Fire Tour. We were in the top balcony all the way in the back. The sound sucked. Then um, I saw Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer. Palmer, not Powell. And uh, we were on the floor. Sound was great. Then I seen Dream Theater two times there. From a balcony, sound sucked. And I saw the, um, remember that John Lennon tribute right after 9-11 where they had, um, it was TNT, I think, that did it, where they had like a tribute to John Lennon and they had all these different bands playing his music and and uh, uh, James Gandolfini hosted it. I don't know if you remember that. but I, I seem to remember that, yeah. Yeah, I was there for that. Upper tier, sound sucked. <laughs> but And I also remember that back then, 2001, a vodka and club was 20 bucks, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so for this, for this show, I just, you, you know, the whole thing is you don't stand in line anymore. You stand in a virtual line and then you get on and you got to be quick on the computer. So I got like, I, th I don't know, I'm like halfway back on the floor from the stage, but I wanted to get good sound. So I got it. I didn't give a shit what the cost was. I just grabbed the tickets, you know, <laughs> so, but it's going to be good. Well, I only... I was on the floor. I the only the only time I ever saw a show there was at uh well I, I saw no I actually saw two shows there. One of them was I'd rather not go into, but I saw Sting. <laughs> I saw Sting at Radio City, and the sound was phenomenal. I mean, the place oh, is designed for sound. It, it's yeah. Radio City Music Hall, right? It's good, but you know what they? I, it is good, but when you sit in the t up in the upper level, it's just not. It's not terrible, but I'll tell you the Beacon Theater. When you sit in the tiers, it's at, when you sit in the third balcony, it does sound great. So I think it's because, you know, Radio City is just such a huge, huge venue. And the stage is so deep that it's hard for them to get the sound to all the places. Because, you know, it was really meant for, you know, and originally I saw uh, the Sunshine Boys there, the movie, with my father in 1974. Right. And I was, in a, I was up in an upper tier and I, I could hear the whole show great i was five years old when i saw it but i remember it was fine <laughs> well one time so. i was there with, with uh with a girlfriend and she loved this tv show called star search so that can get, <laughs> can get a gauge it was the 80s you know <laughs> i <laughs> remember star search <laughs> dragged me there and i mean it was you know everybody they were like oh this like this one guy, I think his name was like Sam Harris or something. He was singing Judy Garland somewhere. Oh, like, oh gosh, please stop. <laughs> please stop. And were you, were you at the bar getting drinks right there? <laughs> no, no, no I, I was there with uh, the, you know, her and family members. But uh, and the, the biggest, the big event of the night was when uh, Ashford and Simpson walked in, you know, and they said like, oh, that's like, they're like, this guy's nine feet tall, you know. <laughs> and it was it was uh valerie you know uh nick ashford and valerie simpson and that was like the big deal like these songwriters walked in you know but it was it was star search and it was it was horrible, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. this guy's singing oh you know somewhere like, oh gosh let it, go. Let, it, let it go man you know what when i saw dream theater there uh i think the first time i saw him there they were they had an album called The Astonishing, which I love. It's like a double CD set, but it's like a it's it's a whole story. So the fans weren't prepared for it that when they performed it, they were just doing that album and nothing else. And it was also after Mike Portnoy left the band. 
So during one of the quiet songs, which I get really mad because the singer, uh, James LeBray, he, he's a ballad singer. He loves singing heartfelt ballads and he's doing his song. Somebody, and we're up in the, me and my son are up in the, the first balcony. Somebody from the right side of the floor seats goes, bring Portney back. And then from the left side, you hear, he's gone, get over it. And then you hear, like, I swear I heard Labrego. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the fans are so divided with that band, you know? <laughs> wow. That was a good show, though. But uh, it was, you know, again, it was hard for the fans because the hard rock fans want to get this headbanging music and they were doing all these ballads and everything. And it was like their version of uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, you know, double album. You know, yeah, whatever. Yep. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I brought up earlier that Mike Portnoy's mother died in a plane crash in Atlantic City, New Jersey in uh, November yep. 1984. I remember and that was. That. I was trying to remember um, he wrote because he grew up with his dad because I guess when the, the divorce happened, he lived with his dad. He really loved his dad. Yeah. And he wrote a song called The Best of Times. And uh, it's if you listen, if you just read the lyrics, you want to cry. It's like it transports you back to we all grew up in the 70s. The, 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 there was a whole different world in the 70s, you know, and yeah. he was along with his father, you know, and it was great. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was a good show, don't you think? Yeah, you know what, though, uh, Miss Lou, because Lou yeah, always well, knows, uh, he knows about the uh, Italo Rock connection on everything. Yeah, well, you yeah. know, we talked about a lot of subjects. I, I was hoping, like, with Lou was here with the Bob Welsh thing, but you know what? what you know, he'll listen to it, and uh, hopefully he'll be back next week. But, um, you know, hey, he's got his son, and he's spending a nice night with his son, so that's cool. That's, the, that's the, the most important thing, you know? yeah. That's so it. we yeah. are Music Relish Podcast at gmail.com and also cast at WordPress if you want to check it out there. And uh, Mark, have a good night. And I'm just going to play a little fade out music here. Okay. Hey, Perry. Yeah. Can I start drinking the Chardonnay now? Yeah. <laughs> okay, man. Because I'm taking tomorrow off. Drink. I got a, I got a PTO day, man. You know? All right. <laughs> Talk to you next week. Talk to you, Barry. Good night. Good night. Where's the music? I don't hear it. <laughs> the IT guy sucks. There it goes. Recorded and produced by Luke Calicchio. Damn good song. Uh, with Perry on acoustic guitar, Mark on Stratocaster guitar, and Lou on drums and various other instruments. Good night. Good night.